Hey, podcast listeners, this is Charles Chandler. This week I'm off uh, doing some other things, so I've dipped back into the archives. This is actually episode number 38, but it's rerun of number 22, which was broadcast on July 1 of this year. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're up to episode number 22, Does Quality Improve Effectiveness? In this episode, I interview Mr. Ankit Patel. Ankit is an entrepreneur and Lean Six Sigma expert. I've gotten to know Ankit recently through a mutual acquaintance. I asked him to come on the show to provide a view on how quality can improve organizational performance, including efficiency and effectiveness. And I'm joined now by Ankit Patel, who's the Managing Director of the Leanway Consulting. You know, if you look in the dictionary and you look at quality, it it means something to most people that's, that's sort of familiar. It's a standard of something as measured against other things or a distinctive attribute. But if you look into the quality literature and the quality movement, uh, quality has become something that's far beyond the dictionary definition. How do you think about quality to get us going? You know, I think that uh, uh, the the Six Sigma definition is something along the lines of um, precision and accuracy to a target. So how precise can you get to a point and how how precise are you? So if I throw darts at a map uh, and I have a bullseye, Precision would be how close and clustered my my dart throwing would be, and accuracy would be how close am I to the bullseye. So I think a a good way that I like to frame it is quality are those two things. Now, how the quality is defined, I'd say, is defined by what the customer wants. So it's an ever-moving target, uh, or it can be an ever-moving target depending on your client base. So, for instance, what people consider good quality in the 70s and 80s isn't necessarily what um, people would consider really good quality now. Let me pick up on a couple of things you mentioned. You mentioned Six Sigma. Um, As I understand Mm -hmm. Six Sigma, it's basically about eliminating defects. In other words, Six Sigma is a statistical term, and it's basically 3.3 defects per million opportunities, if if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's close to that range. I'll be honest with you. I, I can't remember the exact number. But yeah. Yes, it's in that it's in that range. Yeah, that, uh, that's what I looked up anyway. And then you mentioned um, quality is about what the customer wants. Now that brings up a number of issues. Um, how do you know what the customer wants for one thing, and how do you feed that back into the quality process? Uh, maybe we could start there. Yeah, sure. So, so what does the customer want? Well, there's a couple of different ways to to do that, and I think the uh, it depends on the industry. Um, some industries will have uh, uh, very broad knowledge of what the consumer wants, especially the business-to-consumer type type industries. So you get a lot of feedback. So let's say if you're in the fast food industry, uh, depending on your given market segment, you have several competitors, a public traded. You, you kind of understand where the direction the marketplace is going so you can have a pulse on it. Uh, but if you're a, let's say, manufacturing company who's doing a B2B sale and maybe doing, uh, let's say, machine designs, 
you're not going to have a, a lot of uh, customers coming through. So there, there are models that you can use, like things called voice of the customer, which are, which are really like uh, surveys that you can ask your customers and get feedback. Now, um, with that in mind, you got to remember you have to ask the right questions to understand what they really value because uh, they may say one thing but mean something else. So quality is really, when you say, when we say we have to let the customer drive that, we really have to know the psych- psychology and the psyche of the customer to see what they really want. I think uh, Henry Ford said something along the lines of, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said I wanted a faster horse, right? So um, there's a little bit of an art to, to understanding how to get into the psyche of a customer and understand, okay, what exactly is it they're asking for here? Sure. Well, you know, quality, I guess, started off in the manufacturing industry, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in automobiles. And um, I guess the, the way that most American automobile firms came upon it was that the Japanese were beating them in quality in the 80s. And Toyota had its Toyota way. Speak to us a little bit about where we came from there in, in, in the past. Yeah. You mentioned Henry Ford, but um, after Henry Ford, uh, there were a number of other uh, luminaries that came in the middle there. So Henry Ford, uh, was a, he gets credit for being uh, the father of the assembly line, or the person that really uh, expounded upon it. But then you get to post-World War II, uh, and Edward Deming was really a person in the U.S. who was saying, hey, quality matters, people. And everyone in the U.S. basically said, you know, we don't really have any competition. We're kings of the world. Uh, get out of here. We don't, we don't really care about that. I mean, that's kind of a harsh way of saying it, but that's effectively what happened. And he went over to Japan where they found out that they were very receptive. Okay, tell us everything you know. How can we get better? So Edward Deming was uh, uh, one of the foundational pieces of the quality revolution that happened in the 80s, uh, and he started post-World War II in Japan. And then uh, at the same time comes along uh, a gentleman named Taiji Ono, who was uh, working with Toyota at the time. And he came up with the concepts uh, around waste and waste elimination and value. What does value mean versus waste? And developed those concepts into what's now known as the Toyota production system. And so the combination, the confluences of those two events, along with a lot of other things like technology and um, you know, other things, allowed for the Japanese to really get uh, a high level of quality in their per- manufacturing production. Uh, now, remember, they were just trying to be competitive. Their, their whole aspect of coming at quality wasn't to just have quality for quality's sake. It was, we've got to be able to deliver a better product and cheaper than our competitors, and we don't have economies of scale to do that. And so how do we do that? Uh, and so the Deming's thought process and Taiichi Ono's thought process helped them do that. So instead of having massive runs of and batch processing automobiles, uh, they switched over to something closer to single-piece flow uh, where, where they would do one process, one product at a time. And little changes like that really help both with quality and staying cost competitive. Yeah, I guess the Japanese were at a disadvantage being so far from the American market in terms of mm-hmm. uh, exporting automobiles. So they had to come up with uh, something that uh, made it worth the wait to get to get the stuff over there and, and being very receptive in the market once it got there. And Certainly, uh, General Motors and, and Ford's quality wasn't, wasn't gr- that great in the 70s and, and 80s and so on. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Deming, certainly. Uh, Deming was the American that, that took a lot of this to the Japanese after the war. Um, and, and he's considered a very important figure in the quality movement. Uh, but then the Japanese picked up uh, on that and came up with a lot of 
their own terms like uh, waste they call muda I guess um, and flow mura respect for people muria but what I find is that these Japanese terms make it a little bit hard to bring the the quality ideas back to the uh, back to the uh, other countries like U.S. and Europe. Speak to us a little bit about how transportable the Japanese version of it is to these other cultures. Yeah. So I like to frame it slightly differently. I don't necessarily frame it as, okay, is this transportable from one culture to another? Um, I think the, the question really is around what are the current needs in that particular company and what are the confluences of factors that are influencing those decisions? So with any... Um, with any sufficient uh, motivation, people can accomplish almost anything. And I think that's paraphrasing um, uh, what I've heard from uh, a book, Man's Search for Meaning. But uh, basically, uh, the only reason this was even come about from Toyota is because they had a drive and a need to, to adapt and change. Now, a lot of times, when you take these principles and concepts, um, they're, they're usually counter to what's currently existing. So a uh, concept of flow, right, or the concept of overburdening or respect for people, uh, um, those two concepts were, were, were pretty interesting. And the concept of waste, right? So let's, let's touch on the waste one because I think that might be the easiest one to explain in a short time we have. Uh, waste being defined in manufacturing as it, you know, it's a customer willing to pay for it, uh, which, which everyone would agree with. Uh, the other two definitions were around uh, does it change form, fit, or function, meaning that are you transforming the product in any way? And the third one is, is it done right the first time? So going back to the, the quality question or quality comments that we were having earlier. Um, and so when, you, when I present this to a lot of organizations, there's usually a pushback on that. And then I ask them, okay, what if you build the product without having a quality inspection or without having this? And you could guarantee... And you know, just imagine if you can guarantee that it would be, uh, it would work, work work properly the first time you built it, instead of having to do it over and over again. Well, I, as a customer, would I prefer that product, which was probably going to be cheaper because you have to put less effort into it, or am I going to prefer the product that's going to be basically the same thing, but it's going to cost a little bit more because you've had those extra quality checks in it? And so, uh, something like that simple can be a really different reframing. Uh, Toyota took this reframing because they had to be cost competitive. And they determined that, hey, if we're working on things more than once, that costs us money. So we need to cut that out. So part of our definition for value, we need to add in there, it's got to be done right the first time, along with saying that, hey, it's got to change form, fit, or function. If, customer, if it doesn't change form, fit, or function, if we're just taking it from one spot to another without changing it, customer doesn't really pay us for that. You know, they don't, it's not changing anything. Why not just cut the middleman out and go to the person that actually has the original product? So uh, the direct-to-consumer model is, is a uh, – people will consider that a lean model primarily because the – if you're just warehousing, typically that doesn't add any value to the end customer. And so uh, looking at it from this way, they were all around how do we stay competitive and how do we grow our business in a way that, that is cost control so we don't go out of control. We can do it with less capital, um, almost self-finance the growth. And, and so when we look at that, uh, you have to ask questions when you go to other cultures. It's not necessarily, hey, can these be translatable? Or it's more about what what do they need right now and are these the things that will meet their needs at this time and place so uh, you know if you're if you're someone who has a lot of cash in the bank let's say you're apple for instance right if you have a lot of cash in the bank um, and you have economies of scale then if you're a manufacturing 
sometimes it's not as important to do uh, one piece flow uh, because you don't um, you can afford the money you can afford keeping a lot of inventory on hand so for them being driven to do these changes may not be as critical because they're not uh, that's not what's currently driving their needs so uh, is it translatable yes uh, it's happening uh, uh, across several different organizations across the world uh, does it translate? I think it depends on what the needs of the organization are and, and how people receive it and what they've heard and their own biases or, or uh, perceptions of, of lean or Six Sigma. And how receptive they are to new ideas. Let's, let's go back a bit to the early 1900s. Frederick Winslow Taylor wrote his book about scientific management, and his basic idea was to train men to act somewhat like machines in a way to do things with the right tools the right way the first time. And um, as they did that, their wages would also increase because uh, they were getting paid by the amount of work they were doing, uh, you know, how much coal they were shoveling, for instance. Mm -hmm. And as, as we moved on from, let's say, 1911, when that book came out and, and, you know, Henry Ford came along with his, mass production and the assembly line. In, in a sense there, a lot of machines took over uh, from what had been manual uh, labor, you know, beating car parts out by hand uh, in the early, early, early days. Um, and, you know, quality was dependent upon the skill of the artisan or the, the laborer uh, that were making the individual car parts because this was before mass production. And yet that system was a very high-cost system. It was essentially a unique product production as, as things were coming off. You know, these parts were not necessarily interchangeable uh, that easily mm-hmm. because dimensions were not always the same. So we move forward, and, you know, we see so many new things coming on. Talk to us a little bit about uh, how you see manufacturing evolving uh, in the early 1900s on up to, uh, let's say, the present are you referring to primarily how production is, is done in manufacturing? What I'm actually getting at, I guess, is how did the, the idea of quality evolve? Uh, early days, yeah. uh, basically, people were trying to inspect quality into the system. So they would look yeah. at every item that was coming off, and they would you know, put them over in the uh, scrap pile if they weren't meeting certain specifications. But then, you know, as we went through World War II and um, manufacturing... Um, Volume certainly was ramped up to to a large degree. We must have learned some lessons in there. And then as we came out of the war, you know, we're getting into dimming and then the the Toyota system and just in time and all that. Just give us the, you know, sort of 30,000 foot view there. Yeah, so uh, so I'd say that um, I, I'd argue, and I'm not a historian by any means, but from what I know and understand, I'd argue that um, inspecting quality was done even during World War II. You know, we had we got better at it with like the mill standards and, and things like that, but um, there was still an inspection process to actually. Uh, I I've had to say Toyota uh, and to, uh, the the lean methodologies take credit for at least evolving that picture into saying. You know, quality isn't necessarily inspecting it in. Yes, the customer wants a product that they expect, but quality is also making sure that we don't spend extra money on it and, and try to do that. So um, I think that companies are starting to realize that now and say, hey, you know what, if we're going to grow, if we're going to try to be competitive and have a good quality product, we need something that produces a good quality product without having to inspect it um, at the end when it's done. Um, 
you know, another way, uh, you know, if we have to do it where, you know, as we're assembling it, every person checks the previous person's work, then so be it. That prevents, you know, that helps us do it. But if there's a way to what the Japanese call pokeyoking or airproof, then we're going to pursue that option. Uh, I, I like to use an analogy of a railroad track. So inspecting quality in is saying, okay, we, if we don't want any deaths to happen, even accidental deaths on a railroad track uh, where it intercepts the road, um, inspecting quality in would say, okay, well, let's just put up guards, let's put up flashing lights, let's put up all these factors that help prevent it from happening. And those are great, but it will never truly eliminate all the possibilities of a, a car running onto a train track. Um, airproofing, or Tokyo game, which is uh, a more starting to gain more traction and more um, uh, common common uh, place in manufacturing now, is to say, why don't we build a tunnel uh, and put the put the road below the railroad tracks or put the road above the railroad tracks so they never intersect to begin with. And so um, it's the question of um, it's gone from, okay, how do we signal and flag and make sure we stop people from um, producing or, or sending out bad product to let's just avoid that problem altogether. And I think that's where you're going to see more of is that uh, going towards that type of solution. Um, and as you see new technologies emerge like 3D printing and, and that type of technology, um, uh, that's going to change the game a little bit but, uh, uh, in terms of what quality means and um, how to get that to work. But the, uh, It'll definitely change how that looks for manufacturers. So we've talked mostly about manufacturing so far, but mm -hmm. if you look at other segments of the economy, I think the quality movement would argue that it applies everywhere. But talk to us a little bit about how how you can bring it over to other things like hospitals and everything else. Well, you know, I think that so hospitals is an easy translation, right? Quality is uh, is a simple one. Um, hospital acquired infections, that's that's an example, or accidental falls, all these other elements. Then before in the past, people were thinking, okay, we seem more careful. We need to do this. We need to do that. Well, now if you take a quality approach, saying that a, any of these issues is a challenge, what is the root cause analysis, and how do we address these challenges that we're facing, and applying some of these quality tools that you know, manufacturing is really on the uh, on the forefront of developing and apply to other areas. So whether it be a call center, hospital beds, or even, even a creative process, if anything, if, if there's anything repeatable in a task, you can apply quality improvement methods or continuous improvement methods to it. Um, so if anything repeatable happens, then you can apply that to it. Now, even if it's, even if it's not repeatable, there potentially might be quality tools that you can use to, to guide performance as well. So uh, uh, those are things that I think that other folks outside the industry, so even in government, you're starting to see a little bit of it. Um, there are folks starting to work with local and state governments, municipalities, and working on lean and, and how do you improve services to, to the people. Um, and then yeah, things like healthcare, like you mentioned, um, uh, call centers is also important. Uh, that happens there quite a bit too. So there, there are a lot of services that, that will enable this or have enabled it um, Actually, one place I can think of is uh, fast food restaurants are pretty big on this. You, know, you go to McDonald's, you get a consistent burger almost every single time. You know what you're going to get. You know what it's going to taste like. Uh, and the process that you use to produce it is very fast and it's pretty efficient. So that's actually a pretty big byproduct of what they determine their customers view as quality. Yeah, I think it was Peter Drucker that reminded us there's only four production processes known to man. Uh, there's unique product production. There's mass production, there's flexible mass production, and there's flow production. 
So I think you're talking in terms of uh, whatever's reproducible, and that would be mostly mass production or or flexible mass production. You know, well, even even in, even in unique and flow, you, you still have elements that are probably repeatable at some level. So, like surgery uh, might be a decent example of one of those. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm not familiar with those four, but it sounds like um, surgery might fall into as one of the other two, but there are still things like checklists you can put into place that will um, take care of the routine mundane tasks so they can focus on the what's different about this type process. Yeah. Well, I, I used to work in the um, international development area, and uh, one thing I looked into at the time was um, – loan projects that were coming out of these very large development agencies like the World Bank and Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank. And uh, we were trying to figure out um, what was the quality of those um, things as they emerged from the production process. And so early on in development, people were basically using unique product production. So they would uh, put together a report uh, which had a very – just whatever format that they came up with. Uh, but as, as they moved forward and they tried to introduce quality, uh, they had a standard format uh, where you could, and, and objectives had to meet certain criteria, performance indicators had to meet certain criteria, there had to be a logical framework. So uh, it became basically um, flexible mass production because you had this standard format and then you just kind of plugged in um, uh, things into the boxes, into the blanks, you know. And so then it became easy to uh, judge uh, how, how well they were doing, in a sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, that's a pretty accurate description. I think you can apply one of those models to um, a, a lot of different tasks in service industry, even though it's not pure, quote-unquote, production. It kind of re- models it very similarly. Yeah. So... Um, is it fair? Is it fair to say that quality is about doing the right things right the first time, and every time? Uh, I have heard that sort of summary of it. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it is. With the one caveat, assume, assuming that's what the customer wants, it's the precision versus accuracy, right? If you can be, you can precisely hit everything right the first time. But if you're nowhere on the board of the dartboard, then um, the customer doesn't really want it. Then it may not be the the, the best "quote unquote" quality. Uh, that's the only caveat I would add to that. Sure. Certainly, we're all familiar with the factory that produces more than the market can absorb, um, and mm-hmm. basically, it's uh, after a certain point, it, it it's overproduction and it becomes waste because nobody's buying it, and the market's moved on to something else. Yep. Would you say quality? It's mostly about internal issues. It's about taking inputs, converting them into activities, and producing outputs. Now, certainly, those outputs need to be something that the customer wants and that the market wants. And yet, almost everything we're talking about in quality and in TQM is is internal to the firm. Would you say that's true? Well, I'd say that how quality is derived in your internal processes, yes, it's internal to the firm. I, I, would, I would say that the, I think we're saying the same thing here, but I would say the criteria for quality also has an external component of the customer. And I think this has evolved over time. Early on, I think, you know, especially in the quality movement, 
the manufacturing operation was looked upon as more or less a a box uh, that was isolated and uh, had its own inefficiencies that were trying to be removed. As as we got into, let's say, ISO 2008, 2015, some of the international standards, um, the voice of the customer became more prominent, and uh, that became another driver of, a, of another conversation. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that statement. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the ISO process and how you see that evolving. Uh, my, my own take on it is that it's primarily about outsourcing your manufacturing to another country and being sure that whoever's producing it is giving you the standards you want. So let's say we're going to outsource something to China. If they're ISO compliant over their ISO 2015 or whatever, then, then whatever we get back in terms of our product from them hopefully uh, meets, meets the standards that we had uh, set out originally. Yeah, and I think that, um, uh, you know, everyone wants to know that, hey, well, is this process going to give me what I want? And I, there are certain things that are just, uh, I'll call them antis to get into the game. And having defined processes and things like that are, are really, the, uh, in my opinion, uh, and also other folks, is that that's the basic anti to get into the game of making sure you're producing quality products. And ISO is a, just one way to kind of verify that, to give some comfort to folks. And so whether it's your, your you know, from what I see, it really does, like you said, it helps with people from different countries understand, hey, you're, you're following this international standard that I know what you're going to be doing. So at some level, you you put the ante into the game that I that I feel like okay I have to look at some other things but at least you've gone far enough now where I can uh, investigate you further see if you're going to produce a product that's going to meet my quality standards. Yeah, so if you're looking around for uh, manufacturing sources, you're going to be sure mm-hmm. they're all ISO compliant to begin with before you even t- start talking to them. I would guess. Well. It depends. I think from a uh, consumer standpoint, I mean, it depends. I mean, China has kind of changed the economics of it. I've seen people where they they won't go for for that, and they'll just go for the cheapest person. If they have bad defects, and they just chalk it up to bad defects and throw them away, and uh, kind of the opposite of what we're talking about now. But um, reality of it is, it's cheaper for them to go for that type of vendor and throw away product or rework product than it is to um, actually have a high performing product to begin with. That's usually on products that are you know like pencils or something that's pretty simple to manufacture. Usually, the more complex products, an ISO certification is um, required. Yeah. But then those people uh, you you would be talking about were were not part of the quality movement. They hadn't bought into that ethic yet, I guess. Correct. It's not a, a value. The value there, they're just striving to deliver um, whatever the marketplace wants, cheaply as possible, what they think as cheap as possible. But I guess going forward, uh, the real opportunities are in firms that have bought into the quality idea in one form or another. They, they are ISO compliant if they're uh, doing international trade type stuff. But even if, they're, even if they're just operating in this country, there's a lot of advantage to being able to predict and to guarantee what's coming out of your process. Yeah, and you know, I see. I, last year, I worked with an interesting group of folks. Um, uh, I actually worked with the organizations that are called um, Community Resource Partners. But basically, what they do is they're manufacturing. They're specifically manufacturing companies. Um, they do more than manufacturing, but we worked with the manufacturing arms. What they would do is they would employ people with disabilities. And what we found was that 
a lot of these organizations, even though they weren't as large, um, they had ISO certification just to give comfort and to, to, to folks that they worked with because sometimes they were working with vendors who worked for international companies. And so, you know, there'd be tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers who also needed it. And so it drove, even though they didn't really do any work outside of the country, they were working, their direct customer was here in the U.S., they still had that to, to, to make sure that they would satisfy their customers' needs for their customer. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you about one other area that I've seen um, a lot of movement in, and that is in scorecards and dashboards. A lot mm-hmm. of uh, firms uh, and, and organizations in general seems to be adopting scorecards and dashboards, which they use in their performance measurement process. I see some, I see some downside to this, but uh, I wanted to get your take on, on how you think, whether this is helping quality or not, or if it's uh, creating feedback loops that, that may not be. So, you know, I think that that's a tough answer, question to answer. I think it's much more contextual. Because I've seen scorecards and feedback loops that are extremely helpful and extremely effective on how they're used, and I've seen some that aren't. I've seen a lot that aren't, actually. Some of them are just, um, hey, we're just going to measure it for measuring sake. I've noticed in large organizations, so like a balanced scorecard initiative, um, I think that a lot of times it's a great concept, and a lot of times when it comes to practicality and implementation, it tends to be a little overkill. Um, I know that might upset some folks, but just from my own and it's very anecdotal, obviously. I don't have any studies on this. But from my experiences, what I've noticed is that if uh, focusing on a few critical factors uh, based off of a strategy and, and strategic vision seems to be much more effective when it comes to scorecards. Um, but if you have too many things, then sometimes you get the washover effect. It's like you have so much, and, every, and if everything's you know, you're just like, okay, whatever, it is what it is. We're not really going to take any action on it, and we'll move forward. So, which is not the intent of scorecards, obviously, but that's what happens because there tends to be a feeling of being overwhelmed. So what I see more often than not is just, hey, you know what, you're measuring all these things, but you're not doing anything about it. It's almost paralysis by analysis is what, what I end up seeing. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on that. That's, that seems to be my perspective, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, well, I don't think scorecards are bad per se. Uh, I think it depends on how you use them, and, and I think you're saying much the same thing. Uh, but what I do see is that there's a certain ideology of efficiencyism, what I call it, that okay. comes in sometimes where you're trying to optimize uh, the system in a small area. And, and we know from uh, basically systems theory that optimizing or maximizing things in, in, in small areas do not necessarily improve the performance of the whole. Uh, and so you can get some, neg- some feedback loops in there. Uh, for instance, you know, let's say on CEO pay or CEO compensation, if, if CEOs are highly incentivized to make the stock price go up, you know, quarter after quarter, surprise, surprise, you're, you're probably going to see that happen through some financial engineering and other tricks that are not necessarily good for the firm in the long run. Uh, you mm-hmm. see, so I don't think scorecards and dashboards are necessarily bad, but it all depends on how you use them. And in previous uh, episodes of this podcast, actually, We've tried to say how to do that uh, in the right way, and that's mostly focusing on effectiveness uh, rather than efficiency. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as we uh, end this episode, uh, are there other things that we haven't talked about that you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll just uh, echo a little bit more what you're saying. You know, quality, uh, since we're talking about that heavily, is really related to 
hey, uh, what does the customer really want? And how do you do that in the most cost-effective way for the customer that's that um, that's a scalable solution? Um, and I think that, um, you know, especially a lot of companies I work with are fast-growing companies. And so um, when you're in that type of situation, what's you know, quality becomes a, a, a lever. So you, the more time and effort you put into making sure you have a quality product, you'll get exponential returns down the road with that. So um, from, from a standpoint of customer perception, marketplace perception, uh, pricing of a product, as well as cost for producing a product. So I think quality is a much bigger lever than what most people realize. So I, th- I think you would agree, basically, the customer is in control. It's, it's really all about demand-side response, uh, which is where we're coming from, basically, on, on effectiveness. And that um, this is really what's driving uh, things or should be driving things these days. Uh, we've got factories out there that can produce um, many, many times what uh, the customer can uh, afford and pay for and, and, and the demand. Uh, so we're demand-constrained across the world, in a sense. But we've got low low growth, we've got low wages, you know, to get out of this funk, we've got to go out there and find new opportunities in the environment, uh, customers that are not being served, customers that can be served in in more cost-effective ways and grow uh, new types of markets here and there. And I think certainly quality has a role to play in all that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much, uh, Ankit, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. You bet. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we again hear stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcasts at our website, ageofoe.com. So long for now.